0: Welcome back to the 10th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including regulation on crypto is coming, but who will be in charge? The great replacement disillusion, a professor writing about how people with imposter syndrome may actually be a green flag when hiring. And of course, we will end the day with the Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into the stories. Our first one is coming from the pros- American Prospect. Battle Royale for Crypto Oversight kicks off. Two agencies... The CFTC and the SEC want to have responsibility. Lawmakers have a self-interest in that process, too. A hearing today in the Senate Agricultural Committee, which is a weird place to start this article, but you'll understand why here soon, is likely to set the future of regulation for cryptocurrencies. The hearing will be a bipartisan bill from the committee's Senator Debbie Stabnow, Democrat from Michigan, and ranking member, Senate John Bozeman, Republican from Arkansas, which would give oversight of so-called, quote, digital commodities to the Commodity Future Trading Commission, here f- henceforth known as the CFTC. Oversights of assets deemed securities would stay with the Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC. Right now, tokens like Bitcoin or Ether are traded on platforms with no regulatory oversight. Hacks, pump-and-dumps, rug pulls, and other scams are rampant and deeply damaging. Many financial reformers have wanted regulation to move entirely through the SEC, which is better resourced and has an explicit investor protection mandate. But legislation to that effect has not been introduced, and the Stab now Bozeman bill, known as the Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act, or DCCPA, and we'll be saying that a lot during this article, so keep that in mind, gains the first-mover advantage. A separate bill from Senator Christian Dilibrand's New York and Cynthia Loomis, Wyoming, is widely seen as the industry wish list on the other end of the spectrum. Members like Rep. Brad Sherman from California just want to see crypto banned. The D.C.C.P.A. slots in as an attractive to Washington reasonable compromise with support from both sides of the aisle. Stab Now's spokesperson, Elizabeth Riviera, told the prospect that the chair is still working with Republicans on when to do the markups for the bill. Even individuals who are sympathetic to strong financial regulation have endorsed D.C.C.P.A., Todd Phillips for the Center of American Progress, who has argued vehemently for protecting crypto purchasers, will be testifying at the hearing, arguing that the bill is the best available option to close critical regulatory gaps in a targeted way. So, let's take a step back. While I don't disagree that there are regulatory gaps, I think it's very interesting that even the pro- Cryptocurrency people in Washington still want to regulate it as much as they can. And obviously this is because there are special interests involved here. There are companies like banks who want to be able to have control over these assets. Currently, they don't alone control the flow of money, but they have a large influence over it. So having a decentralized currency that they can't necessarily control and have stored up so that they can manipulate certain prices or use as leverage to get what they want. And what I mean by that is in order to lobby politicians, I think it's very interesting that we see even the most, quote, pro-crypto legislators coming down on the side of regulation. Now, of course, this makes sense if we look back to the 40s after the financial crisis, Uh, The SEC was founded and other uh, financial monitoring agencies so that they can ensure that people don't lose their money. But it's just very interesting that we've shifted from a completely free market perspective where in the past, oh, no, no, leave crypto unregulated. Let people make mistakes. If they fall for a scam, they fall for a scam. They were an unwise investor to we have to protect our citizens' money, which is a fair point. And, of course, it is the government's job to protect its citizens. Now, does that mean that you should be able to make terrible financial decisions and then be reimbursed uh, by the government? I don't necessarily think so. But that's also because I'm a business major and I'm also biased. I, I own crypto. So that's the disclosure right there. So obviously I'm biased on this one. Next. But the Fenway community is not universally on board. A new letter out today from two academics and senior policy analysts for Americans for Financial Reform, Mark Hayes, highlights several problems. The CFTC, they say, is understaffed and has scant experience drafting rules to protect retail investors. In addition, it has not performed ably in early efforts to deal with new offerings like Bitcoin futures. Quote, overall, the CFTC has thus far adopted a permissive approach to crypto oversight and has undermined market integrity and exposed customers to potential harm. End quote. This is what the letter says. At the heart of the fight is the question of which federal agency will get get to regulate crypto and which members of Congress will get jurisdiction Even though the CFTC and the SEC sit on the same broad category of financial market oversight because commodity futures grew out of the farms hedging future prices for grain and other crops, that's a mouthful of goodness, the CFTC is under the purview of the House and Senate Agricultural Committees. The SEC goes through more typical banking and financial service committees. And that's exactly why we started this article in the Agricultural Committee where this hearing is taking place. This matters because the crypto industry has dropped an incredible amount of money this election cycle. Banking and Agricultural Committee members both benefit from having some part of the financial system interested in their work. And if crypto regulation goes all to one agency or the other, one of those committees will be deprived of the opportunity for campaign cash. Quote, the empathetic view is that this is how committees work and they can still do effective oversight. The cynical view is that that's what's wrong with Washington, said Hayes. And I have to agree with the, the cynical view. Of course, they want to have as much campaign money as possible because they want to win their elections. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but it is how Washington works. And it is unfortunate to see sometimes that special interest including banks, crypto companies, uh, teachers' unions, so on and so forth, can have so much sway over our politics. But by keeping regulatory oversight in both agencies, critics fear the industry could simply forum shop for whatever agency offers the lightest touch and contour their offerings to fit the definition of a digital commodity or security. It will lead to interagency turf battles over who gets to regulate what, which could ultimately harm the overall regime. The quote, the industry says, get us rules, end quote, said Lee Reiners, policy director at the Duke Financial Economic Center. Quote, when they get these rules, they will know how to game them, end quote, which is true. It's like when we look at Facebook from uh, the last few years. If you remember, if you were on YouTube, maybe other online websites, they were running heavy ad campaigns of, we need to reform 230. And the people that are a little bit less cynical about it would say, well, yes, we need to reform 230. Uh, We need to make it easier for these companies to take down content that is misinformation and disinformation and make sure that people are not negatively affected by that. But the cynical people would say, no, no, no. They want regulation so they know what they can and can't do. So they can't get screwed over and sued because 230 is so vague. So that's exactly what these companies are asking for. They're like, give us the guardrails. Uh, we want to know what we can and can't do. We want to know what we're liable for, because right now we're in a gray, we're in the middle, we're in a gray area where we could get sued for offering certain tokens that are not legitimate, that don't have good backing, that were just scams of other tokens. So once these committees and other agencies put in more regulation, they can be in a less precarious situation when it comes to the legal gray area. All right, back to the article. The hearing today has two parts. CFTC Chair Rostin Benham, himself a former Stab Now Senior Counsel, will testify in the first session, which coincidentally will offer <laughs> he will offer while the SEC Chair Gary Gensler is testifying at the Senate Banking Committee. Gensler has been a sharp critic of the crypto industry. The Wall Street Journal ran a piece last week suggesting that Gensler would support Congress handing authority to the CFTC for digital commodities oversight. Though it appeared to mostly take his words out of context, Benham, meanwhile, has been asking for regulatory authority over crypto assets. The second panel is composed of mostly industry groups, including representatives from Coinbase, Citadel Securities in the Crypto Council for Innovation, alongside Phillips, In an interview, Phillips told the prospect that, quote, there is simply no current regulatory regime sufficient to address the harms for digital commodities. This is the only bill that has been introduced to do that, end quote. The DCCPA would require all entities that allow for the trading of digital commodities, platforms, brokers, dealers, and the like to register with the CFTC, those entities would be held to standards of traditional financial institutions required to hold sufficient capital, report suspicious transactions and abusive practices, and ensure investors custody of their assets. There is also disclosure requirements around risk and conflicts of interest. Quote, this gives the CFTC the ability to examine every transaction on these platforms, end quote Phillips said. So that's another scary part, real brief here. Uh, they'll have a a log of all the transactions. So if they can't with the cryptocurrency the way it's laid out for the most part You can verify different transactions, but it goes through so many different computers that it is hard to identify where it started, and that's why it's nice and decentralized and for the most part can be anonymous. But with this, they'll be able to track all transactions and see who made it for how much, so on and so forth. So that's the part that I'm not necessarily looking forward to with these different types of regulations the definition of digital commodities in the dccpa isn't entirely precise but it specifically names ether and bitcoin two of the biggest crypto assets as the types that would qualify ethereum the parent company of ether is going through a change in its security model which some reformers think make it more resemble to a security quote unless the bill authors and the CFTC hammer out a clear understanding of where the SEC begins and ends. It doesn't leave it to CFTC rulemaking. We feel the bill may be doing more harm than good, Hayes said. That puts a lot on the plate of the agency that has done little to convince critics of its regulatory authority. Quote, when it comes to crypto, CFTC is a modern day OTS, They just are, end quote, said Reiners, referring to the old defunct Office of Thrift Supervision, seen as so weak a regulator that banks would shape their institutions to get under its purview. Phillips disputes that, noting that Gensler himself once ran the CFTC, quote, it doesn't have to do with one agency over the other. It's who does the president nominate and will Congress give them the money to carry out the law, end quote. Still, early returns on CFTC's efforts in crypto have been not promising. Donald Trump's choice to run the agency, Christopher Giancarlo, literally wrote a book with the title referring to himself as, quote, Crypto Dad. The letter points out, quote, since 2014, the CFTC has brought just over 50 enforcement actions pertaining to cryptocurrency, a surprisingly low number considering the rampant fraud and abuse in cryptocurrency markets, end quote. The SEC has nearly doubled that in a shorter time frame. In June, the agency under Benham's direction filed a civil lawsuit against Gemini, a crypto exchange under its anti-fraud and anti-market manipulation authorities. The suit alleges that Gemini's Bitcoin futures product based its reference price on a thinly traded auction, that could be easily manipulated. So because it was small, a uh, small amount of transactions would greatly inflate the price, and small trades that were in the negative direction would also uh, affect the price greatly. So that's why they were worried about that one, which Gemini knew and lied to the, F, uh, the CFTC about. This means that it took five years for the CFTC to recognize market manipulation and take effect. Quote, how is that effective regulation when you come in after the fact, end quote, Reiner said. The problems critics say is that the CFTC typically regulates derivative products, which large and sophisticated investors purchase. Retail investors concerned don't play by the rules meaning that the agency is untested in writing rules about things like deceptive marketing. CFTC has also historically lacked resources to even deal with derivatives monitoring. In the DCCPA, the agency would be able to impose user fees on crypto platforms to fully fund oversight, and along with additional appropriations would be crucial, Phillips said. But the CFTC could still end up behind the curve. Cryptocurrencies have been created at the drop of a hat through a quote self-circulation regime, where a product can be listed as long as the entity selling is certified that it complies with all rules and regulations. Quote this regime allows you to say we put this out on paper, we got all the right stuff in here, we're good to go, we'll start marketing. And quote Hayes explained, and the CFTC will have to decide whether to halt the process. Since anyone could just pull source code from another token, marginally change it, and produce a new one, new coins can be created arbitrarily in quantities that are massive in mere minutes, creating a potential overload of the CFTC. The Bitcoin future markets also rely on self-certification process. That's how Gemini's allegedly manipulated futures lasted for five years before the CFTC filed a complaint. The CFTC hasn't halted trading in any self-certified commodity derivatives since 2017, though it has said it engaged in, quote, heightened review with platforms to ensure compliance. But that's a non-statutory informal regime. CFTC has also said that it just looks at the derivatives contract for exposure to fraud and not the underlying asset, which was the case with Gemini. Quote, this creates a fast lane, Reiner said. Quote, that obviously is a problem with fundamentally novel products that should be subject to greater scrutiny by regulators. End quote. He suggests a process where issuers would have to submit the product to the CFTC for approval rather than self-certification, which is scary. If you can only create a cryptocurrency if the government says so, It completely defeats the purpose of cryptocurrencies in the first place. It's supposed to be decentralized. It's supposed to not be tied to the government. And though the value itself may not be directly tied to the government, if it still needs government approval, it is a government-sponsored cryptocurrency, which is outrageous in my opinion. Critics are also concerned that the DCCPA would preempt state efforts at strong regulation, like in New York and California. Preemption was a possible, uh, problem during the housing bubble when the Office of Co- Contemplar of the Currency overrode state predatory lending laws. Supporters of the DCCPA say that the importance of getting some oversight in place for these unregulated parts of the crypto or market supersedes any concerns about forum shopping or turf wars quote there will always be bitcoin assets that are not securities we need some kind of regulatory oversight of them phillips said quote i like this bill because for things that aren't securities it does a good job asked whether the sec should handle those non-securities phillips said he didn't really have a preference But other reformers, while recognizing that spot market oversight is a huge gap, are concerned that the legislation would just backstop the SEC but erode its jurisdiction. Quote, I do agree that the bill, should it pass, is an improvement over the status quo, Reiner says. Quote, but the status quo is pretty awful. I just think we can do better, end quote. So lots of back and forth, but if you notice here, the back and forth is over the nuance of how they should regulate it and who should regulate it, not whether it should be regulated at all. So we can already tell through the, the lens here what the bias of the article is as well as the thought process of people in Washington. They want control. They want access to the logs of all the companies that are trading cryptos. They want to be able to say, hey, no. This crypto, you can't put it out on the market, it's not certified, it's not verified, it doesn't have enough backing, so on and so forth. So we can see where this is headed, and we've seen it for a few years now. We knew regulation was coming. If anything, I would hope that it's decentralized. It doesn't go just to the CFTC, or it doesn't just go to the SEC, so at least it's spread out, and one... Person can't come in by in an administration and just take a hardline approach and completely uh, devastate the crypto markets. But we'll see how it pans out. Um, at this point, it looks like light regulation is coming, and that probably won't change anytime soon. All right, our next article is from the Bellawok: The Great Replacement Disillusion. The conspiracy theory, believed by nearly a third of American adults, muddles the facts of demography and immigration history. As the midterm elections draw near, Republicans have seized on inflation as their prime weapon for bludgeoning Democrats. Yet at the same time, most Republicans are hostile towards one of the best tools available for reducing inflationary pressure, immigration. For decades, the Republican Party wasn't Unformally hostile to newcomers It was conflicted on immigration As the liberal and pro-business elements of the party Coexisted fitfully with immigration opponents Although the two factions were held together By a shared law and order opposition to illegal immigration That coalition fell apart With Donald Trump's takeover of the party in 2016 Ever since, the GOP has been overwhelmingly opposed to immigration Legal and illegal alike largely on the grounds that it changes the racial and ethnic composition of a country, a conviction exacerbated by the so-called Great Replacement Theory, which holds that liberal elites are behind the decline in the proportion of the population that is non-Hispanic white. And if you remember, this story blew up probably a month and a half ago at the time of recording this, where they were talking about uh, Tucker Carlson peddling Uh, Great replacement theory. Actually, the words they use is semi or close to great replacement theory because he's not saying necessarily that all the elites are out here changing the way the country is uh, demographically set up, but rather that certain political sides, Democrats have a vested interest in bringing in illegal immigrants and making it easier for them to vote in certain jurisdictions, which is a very complicated argument, and you would have to analyze their uh, motivation, and you would have to know, no, no, they are intentionally doing this in order to actually prove what Tucker Carlson and some other components say about the Great Replacement Theory, or at least semi-Great Replacement Theory. So it's very hard to prove. I do think it's interesting that for years they've been pushing less restrictive voting laws, uh, especially when it comes to voter ID, saying that it hurts minorities, which it may or may not. The data has come in from both sides. I've seen studies and everybody's going to find statistics that support their own side. But it's interesting that part of their policy agenda has been making sure that voter ID is uh, not implemented in certain areas and that voter laws are less restrictive. So it kind of lends itself to asking the question, why? Why do you want that when you're also pushing for more immigration? Just a question that needs to be put out there, a little bit of context, because the Bellwalk, they have their opinions, they're biased, as is every news source. So I'm throwing out mine and that question ahead of time before we get into the rest of this. Is it true that the past half-century has seen the beginnings of a demographic transformation in the United States? Yes, in the 1965, in 1965, 84% of Americans were non-Hispanic whites, while currently about 60% of the population consists of non-Hispanic whites. But this fact doesn't support the pernicious Great Replacement belief held by nearly one-third one in three Americans, thanks in large part to promoters with large platforms, referring to Tucker Carlson and other people on Fox News, Newsmax, that this trend reflects a conspiracy by elites to replace the country's white population with immigrants. To counter this widespread disillusion, it is worth revisiting the history behind the changing demography, which shows that it was popular, consensus-driven, Bipartisan immigration legislation that decreased the proportion of American whites' population over the decade. Not a scheme by elites, and further, that this demographic change was not a goal of that legislation, but one of its invertent results. There was a time when elites did intentionally engineer America's demography, but their goal was to bolster white racial hegemony, not tear it down. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, politicians enacted such racist federal immigration legislation as the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act and the 1924 National Origins Quota Act, which were designed to prevent changes to the country's demography. Immigration from Asia was mostly banned, and immigrants from Northern and Western Europe were favored over those from Southern and Eastern Europe. The legislation, especially the bills passed in the early 1920s, dramatically reduced immigration to the U.S. and succeeded in limiting demographic changes for decades. However, by the 1950s and 60s, growing public concern over racial inequity in American society brought new scrutiny to the quota-based immigration system, which was perceived as limiting the country's influence abroad during a nervy era of the Cold War with the USSR, These concerns invigorated efforts to change the system, according to the Bipartisan Policy Center. In 1956, the platforms of the two major political parties called for an end to discriminatory quota systems. Within a decade, immigration legislation was enacted that replaced it with the immigration system that we largely have in place today. The Immigration and Nationalities Act of 1965 allows people to immigrate to the United States on the basis of family ties to U.S. citizens and permanent residents, to a lesser extent, on skills possessed by individuals and their pending job offers. That year, national origin restrictions were done away with. Immigration became available to qualifying citizens of all countries, Annual caps do continue to limit the number of immigrants allowed to receive visas, although some relatives of U.S. citizens are exempt from that cap, and the caps are applied universally instead of targeting specific countries. This rough summary doesn't capture the expansive and complicated nature of the law and latter changes to it, but it suffices to show that the 1965 legislation constituted a major shift away from the previous system. And I think it was interesting that they brought up the point about the Cold War, which was a major factor in a lot of the policy during that time. And it makes sense that in order to expand our reach and to kind of bring people into our democracy circle, we would increase the amount of people from other countries, maybe if they're escaping communism, maybe if they are just pro-democracy in general and they could spread that belief to their family back in the country that they're from, that makes sense to me that we would have a more welcoming appearance on the world stage in order to seem more friendly and make democracy seem like a better solution to the world's problems and have more of a liberal approach rather than a communist approach like the USSR. But back to the article. In the decades since the act went into effect in 1968, the system it created has been one of the major drivers of U.S. demographic change. Tens of millions of immigrants have entered the United States from around the world since then. By 2015, they made up 14% of the country's population. Contrary to the great replacement belief that a cabal of elites is engineering America's changing demography the bill was supported overwhelmingly by both houses of congress with most republicans and democrats alike voting for it and that's another thing that comes back to the cold war era that mindset of the time was we are united against the big threat russia so i think it makes sense if they follow that same logic that i mentioned before that both parties could come together and say no no we need to deal with the bigger problem here the law was not expected to bring about racial change. Supporter, supporters of the measure, including President Lyndon Johnson, anticipate a modest impact, although they may have also downplayed the demographic eventualities that have proceeded to allay the racial and nativist anxieties of the bill's opponents. A bipartisan Policy Center report notes that the law's prioritization of family connections, quote, was not initially intended to spark a demographic shift. At the time, this priority was thought to continue to favor European immigrants because of the mostly European-descended population in the United States. In fact, this was a key factor in winning over some of the law's detractors. End quote. Zolberg, author of A Nation by Design, similarly observes that, quote, the record clearly indicates that while the lawmakers did intend to eliminate the immigration system's discriminatory features, notably as they affected Asians and West Indians, they did not anticipate the incoming flows would expand as much as they did, nor that non-European sources would become as dominant, quote. But decades after the 1965 bill had already started to change Americans' dem- demography, Further legislation in 1986 and 1990 enabled still more immigrants and the bills enjoying similarly bipartisan support. The 1986 measure signed into law by Republican President Ronald Reagan after passing with strong majorities in both chambers, which included the support of almost two-thirds of Republicans in the Senate, allowed almost 3 million undocumented immigrants to legalize their status. It has also strengthened immigration enforcement and made it more difficult to hire undocumented workers, further incentivizing the pathway to citizenship. The 1990 law expanded employment-based immigration while also increasing other categories. As in 1986 and the 1990 bill was signed by a Republican president. It also had the support of a large majority of Republican senators. So... If you notice here, when they're talking about these bills, it legalized 3 million undocumented immigrants. Great. And that got Republican support. They're trying to point out that the Republican Party has shifted a lot. But if you also notice, it's not one or the other. It's not, oh, they allowed these 3 million undocumented immigrants in. They also made it harder to hire undocumented workers. And they've tried to incentivize the pathway to citizenship. So the reason that these bills made it through on a bipartisan basis is because one side got what they wanted, but they also conceded something. And that's something we don't see much now in our political system. It's either all or nothing. We get what we want, or it's the other side's fault. And it's really hard in the Senate that's tied right now 50-50. And some people are not willing to move. They're not willing to budge. We are so stuck in a partisan system that even if something could benefit their state. A Republican says, no, it's a Democrat proposal. I'm not touching it. And that also has something to do with the fact that Democrats try to sneak in small provisions just like Republicans do. So we've become ever so more divided versus in the 1986 and 1990 bill where we still had a common threat of Russia. We had someone that could be the enemy outside the state rather than it being the opposite political party and we had other pressing social issues as well. So keep that in mind. The bellwalk makes it seem very cut and dry, but they forget to bring in the modern-day context. Speaking of the inadvertent consequences, some of the policies that right-wing believers in the Great Replacement Theory support actually exacerbate the alleged problems that are they are meant to address. For example... As counterintuitive as it seems, there is evidence that increasingly vigorous border enforcement has itself contributed to an increase in illegal immigration to the United States from Latin American countries. According to sociologist Douglas Massey and population researcher Karen Prenn, that's because it has historically incentivized temporary or seasonal workers to settle in the United States permanently instead of going home. Before 1965, many Mexican workers entered the United States on temporary work permits through the Barcio program, which was introduced in 1942, following agreements between the U.S. and Mexico. When the program ended in 1964, rates of illegal immigration from Mexico went up, but much of the increase was circular, that is, the end of the job or season many illegal immigrants would cross back into Mexico to go home, following the same pattern they did when it was legal under Barcio. Illegal immigration plateaued in 1980, but the increased border enforcement beginning in the 1990s. Massey and Penn argue that, quote, The costs and risks of unauthorized border crossing mounted and migrants minimized them by shifting from a circular to a settled pattern of migration, essentially hunkering down and staying once they had successfully run the gauntlet at the border. It was thus a sharp decline in the outflow of undocumented migrants, not an increase in the inflow of undocumented migrants that was responsible for the acceleration of undocumented population growth during the 1990s, in early 2000 and this decline in return migration was a great extent a product of u.s enforcement efforts the current american immigration system is hardly welcoming to most immigrants a reality that is difficult to square with the one stipulated by the great replacement theory thousands of men women and children have died or been seriously injured trying to enter the united states illegally because of how few legal options are available to them. Migrants often undertake serious, even deadly, risks in order to cross the border by other means. Further, there have been millions of deportations in recent decades. Haitian migrants have been interdicted at sea and prevented from reaching the U.S. shores. Our immigration system is also characterized by workplace raids, detentions, abuse of immigrants by government agents, and years-long waitlist for visas. Notice they sneak that little um, pathos argument in there. They're trying to make you passionate, feel a certain way, trying to make you feel empathetic to the situation of the migrants. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's just another layer to the argument here when it's been very rational, very statistics-based, and now they're trying to make you feel emotion and they're trying to bring that into the argument here which i don't think is a good way to compel people and what i mean by that is it's effective you can compel people with emotion but when it comes to analyzing an issue we should try to keep as much emotion out of it as possible just because it makes it extremely hard to have an effective solution that is going to be able to work for as many people as possible and not pref- uh, prefer one group over another. Back to the article. Great replacement theory, true believers, are also out of step with the opinions of a majority of their fellow citizens who are comfortable with both migration, immigration to the United States and the demographic changes that result from it. This is hardly the stuff of minoritarian cabals. Nearly two-thirds of American favor either increasing or the current levels of immigration. And even 73% of non-Hispanic white Americans are either neutral or positive about demographic change. This statistic I find very, very hard to believe and not because they have quotes here and they show the stats. I just, I think their polling is off because nearly 50% of the voting population voted for Donald Trump who was very anti-immigration. So it's hard to believe that two-thirds of Americans, or 73% of non-Hispanic whites, actually favored demographic change. So keep that in mind. I mean, that's just the quick logic test. Most Americans believe that immigration, quote, enriches American culture and values, and sees immigrants as a boon to economic growth, which is true, increases the tax base, more people to spend money, Uh, on consumer goods right now that may not be a good thing because of high inflation we actually want to limit the amount of spending in the economy but we're not on the inflation debate today the latter belief reflects research showing that while a relatively small number of native-born American workers compete with immigration workers and while immigration may elevate real estate prices in the main Quote, immigration is an economic resource that enhances the U.S. workforce, not to mention the tax base and consumer base, end quote, according to the American Immigration Council. Then, two, the millions of immigrants who reside in the United States are hardly a political monolith. Their politics are far too ambiguous to serve a conspiratorial agenda, and it is unclear how their votes will affect future elections. That doesn't stop Fox News host Tucker Carlson from spreading a version of the Great Replacement that focuses on supposed Democratic efforts to replace, quote, American voters with immigrant voters. But what would he make, for example, of the fact that many Latinos voters are increasingly voting for Republicans? This trend, this is me, by the way, this trend was not noticeable until three years ago for the longest time, the Democrats have taken a position of building a coalition of minorities that will eventually outvote the white bloc. If you go back to some of Obama's 2010-2012 speeches, he talks about the new base for the Democratic Party. So I don't think it's that far out of the way to say that they believed, the Democrats believed until a few years ago, that these immigrant voters would vote for them. Now, as time has gone on, as people have become more settled, and as more Latinos are becoming active voters, we can see that they hold a lot of conservative Christian views. But this wasn't exactly clear a few years ago. We didn't see them turning out for Republicans as much as Democrats. So, While they have a point that they are voting for Republicans now, we didn't see this trend four years ago when a lot of this conversation was going on that Donald Trump was spurring. And while naturalized immigrants cast votes in ways that pundits find hard to predict, many immigrants never naturalize their status and thus are ineligible to participate in elections, rendering them quite ineffective as far as replacement goes. It is also difficult to predict how their descendants will vote. The ancestors of many of Trump's supporters belong to, quote, undesirable immi- immigrant communities because they came from unfavorable parts of Europe. Once again, easily able to tack a asterisk on there, which is in certain states they have gotten rid of voter ID laws, which means that you don't have to have a license of some kind in order, to vote. So they're making it easier for there to be workarounds. Maybe that has something to do with the thought process of Republicans. Maybe they're seeing the two different policies and they may be completely different. Immigration and voter ID slash their push for voter rights may be completely separate. But the fact that they can kind of come in tandem, it does raise the question, why are they pushing both of these at the same time? So I would say Republicans aren't unfounded in asking those questions. Now, is it a giant conspiracy? I don't think so. I don't think it's that crazy. I think Democrats genuinely are good hearted and they want to make it more easy for different people to vote. Maybe people in communities that it's hard to get a driver's license or it's hard to get a form of state ID, but it doesn't mean that there's not that question in the back of some people's minds. Like, that's kind of convenient, but both of these policies align towards one end goal. All right. Here's the closing of the article. All this irrationality aside, it is important to identify the underlying political failure of those who advance the Great Replacement conspiracy theory. They have given up on the responsibility of every political party to adapt their message and policies to appeal to voting populations whenever it is racial or ethnic makeup. There are many sources of American demographic change, but not one of those sources is the secret mechanisms of a group of elite conspirators working to consolidate their waning power over American culture and society. The truth is that popular bipartisan legislation over half a century ago made greater rates of immigration to the United States possible following years of nation-based quotas and caps. Immigrants moved to the United States in large numbers for unexpectedly diverse places, and strong border enforcement had the unexpected effect of inducing many to stay permanently who otherwise might have gone home after the season. These and other factors have all contributed to the forming of a more diverse America, Moreover, most Americans report welcoming or at least accepting both recent immigration levels and the demographic change that have resulted. It is time for the conspiracy theorist minorities to accept reality and for the politicians and members of the media who promote great replacement lies to devote their energy to making appeals to Americans instead. So that is a good point there at the end, of course, which is though they may think that this great replacement is going on, you still need to talk to your people. You need to still understand what your voters want from you. And if they don't want you to worry about immigration, then don't worry about immigration. Now, if your voters are worried about immigration and this, quote, great replacement lie, you need to either sit them down, have a conversation, understand why they think what they do, and see if their claims are justified, or help guide them to a place that is less conspiratorial. But That was a long article. Let's move on from that one. We got one more serious one here, which is from Inc.com. Three reasons imposter syndrome actually is actually a professional superpower, according to a professor who wrote a book on spotting talent. The economist and author Tyler Cohen runs through all the reasons hiring managers should see imposter syndrome as a positive thing. Imposter syndrome, the feeling that you're faking it at work and someone will soon figure it out, doesn't feel good. But it actually says something good about you and your professional abilities, according to star Worthen professor and best-selling author Adam Grant. Quote, imposter syndrome isn't a disease, end quote. He recently wrote on LinkedIn, quote, it's a normal response to internalizing impossibly high standards and usually means you're facing a new challenge and you're going to learn, end quote. He's not the only well-regarded professor who feels the imposter syndrome, unpleasant as it may be, is actually a good sign. Grant's post is targeted at employees worried about their own imposter syndrome. A recent Bloomberg column by Tyler Cohen A George Mason economist, blogger, super reader, and co-author of the book, Talent, about spotting those with undervalued potential, speaks directly to those hiring. Its message is simple. Imposter syndrome is actually a professional superpower, and you should strongly consider hiring those who admit to experiencing it. Cohen's complete column is worth a read, but his arguments boil down to three points. One... Imposter syndrome signals ambition and competence. You might think feeling dumb or inadequate is a sign of someone maybe that is dumb or inadequate. Not so. As famous dunning kruger effect tells us, it's the hopelessly incompetent who are generally the most confident as they lack the skills to understand how unskilled they are. The more expert and knowledgeable you get, the more likely you are to be plagued with self-doubt. Basically, imposter syndrome means you're likely to both understand what high standards look like and hold yourself to them. Quote, if you think you're not qualified to do what you're doing, it is a sign that you're setting your sights high and reaching for new and perhaps unprecedented levels of achievement, Cohen writes. Two, imposter syndrome can be a sign of precautious talent, Sometimes people experience imposter syndrome because they really do lack the unusual qualifications for a role. That's often not a bad thing, Cohen points out. Quote, consider the teenagers who drop out of college, start tech companies, and become billionaires in their 20s. It is hardly surprising that sometimes they feel like they don't belong, end quote, notes Conan. He also points to journalists as Ezra Klein and Matt Ugas quote, who two decca- decades ago were two kids with undergraduate degrees writing on the Internet. They were imposters, pretending they were official public intellectuals, whatever that might mean. And now they're official, widely read, and deservedly so, end quote. Imposter syndrome is particularly common in those on accelerated or non traditional career paths, and these folks are often among the most passionate and gifted in any given field. So while not every kid trying to fake it until they make it is a budding savant, it probably makes sense for hiring managers to give the young and bold extra consideration. 3. Imposter syndrome makes you more empathetic. Imposter syndrome is hugely common, and even the world's top performers are not immune. Everyone from pop star Lady Gaga to tennis star Serena Williams to chess champion Magnus Carlson has admitted to feeling like a fraud. Which means when you experience imposter syndrome, you're actually experiencing a near-universal human challenge, which just might help you to understand your fellow human beings a bit better. Quote, on a professional level, if you want to be in better touch with your colleagues, maybe it's a good idea for you to try out some new and unfamiliar tasks. And they can, too. It will make everyone more understandable and more sympathetic, especially important qualities for being a successful boss, end quote, suggests Conan. All of which adds up to a convincing case that, as Cohen puts it, imposter syndrome is actually, quote, a professional superpower, end quote. If a job candidate admits to being a sufferer in an interview, consider that a green flag. And yeah, I I think that's a very interesting article. Uh, As a person going into business, I'll definitely keep that in mind because I would love high achievers working at my company. All right, so we've gone through all the heavy stuff. Now we are going on to our daily delight. Woman adopts a blind cat and her dog is completely smitten with it. Many people only stick to one type of pet, and it has been either a dog or a cat. This is due to lifestyle, preference, or belief that a dog or a cat will suit their personality. For so long, a person is known as a cat or a dog person until something changes their perspective. Bruno is a blind cat adopted by Kelsey, who works at an animal shelter. Apparently, Kelsey has always been a dog person, and she actually has a dog named Ed, her buddy, for over nine years. When Bruno became part of the family, Kelsey and her fiancé were quickly smitten by the adorable kitty. Although medical tests have shown that the cat is completely blind, Kelsey thinks Bruno's eyes function well, and there are times when it looks like the cat can actually see his surroundings. Quote, "He he was found by the local animal control. All of his siblings got adopted, and he ended up having medical issues, Kelsey shared. Kelsey suddenly became attached to him. They built a bond that started with hanging out in the office. However, one problem needed to be resolved first. Ed, her dog, wasn't fond of cats. Kelsey decided that Bruno and Ed should be introduced slowly to each other. She didn't push for interaction until they both learned how to adjust for each other's presence. Amazingly, it was only a week before the cat and dog were best buds. Bruno's charm wasn't just working on humans. Dogs were vulnerable as well. Ed was utterly smitten by Bravo, and he was just comfortable around him. The blind cat even gives Ed kisses whenever they hang out. Well, cute little story there about our boy Bruno. I'm happy to see that he found a home. So if you want to read any of the articles, including that one, Uh, They will be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. And with that said, there's only one more thing. Stay safe. Don't die.